So uh, last week, uh, we started Acts chapter 19. Last week, um, we looked at an example of discipleship. It's really, you know, again, when we look at certain passages, I'm not sure, you know, it's, it, it's like if, if uh, just, just when you cover a passage, you say, okay, I think this is what the passage is about. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you have a good understanding, but there's, there's just, <laughs> because of God's Word and the depth of God's riches, there are so many things that you can just uncover. And really, even last week was just seeing uh, Paul as an example of discipleship. Um, that uh, he, he, you know, we see him when he first came to Ephesus, and you can just look at, you know, this chapter 19 is Paul going to Ephesus, and look at it from that historical point of view. That really, Luke, you know, that's his, his main emphasis, but... When he gets there, he, he encounters this group of, uh, of disciples who were disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so Paul, you know, kind of gently has uh, asked some questions and they come to the realization that they don't know the Holy Spirit. And so Paul um, kind of relates to them, you know, that it was the Spirit that pointed to Jesus Christ. And then after that, they, uh, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and they... Um, they uh, prophesy and speak in tongues. And so we see this, this example of Paul kind of just, you know, being gentle with them and then showing them uh, what they're missing. And then after that, we see that he sets up shop at, uh, you know, the Hall of Tyrannus, a, um, probably a, a guy who was a teacher there um, and uh, gave up his lecture hall during the afternoon hours. <clears throat> and Paul taught for two years the disciples there. And so we looked again at that kind of dedication that Paul had in uh, investing in teaching the Word of God to the people. And so we kind of turn and, and see some of the events that happened while Paul was in these two years in Ephesus. And uh, as we think about what's going what's gonna, to, um, we're going to go to, uh, we're really going to dive deep into what the culture believed. And there's sometimes, you know, if you think like what our culture believes or what we what we believe in as a people, um, it's not just in America, but it's widespread worldwide um, that there is a uh, belief in the supernatural. There is a belief in the supernatural. There's also a, a uh, reaction to that as a um, belief in there is no supernatural uh, realm. But it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And so how would you say that uh, the American culture um, shows its uh, belief in the supernatural? So we think about our neighbors, we think about, you know, I guess, TV shows, things that we see. How, how does it manifest itself uh, in our culture today? Okay. You can read. Uh, well, how does that? So, in in what way? It just shows that people are searching and grasp for things that aren't true, but they have a some kind of mystic element of supernatural about them. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely true. Do you, do you have any examples specifically, like not titles, but in no, what way? Title. What's that? Give me a <laughs> you can give me a title. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, or somebody's experience with, uh, you know, I guess with, with his recollection of um, encountering the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in three different, three different persons. Okay? That's good. That's a good, good example. Well, how else do we see it? Well, there's stuff on Oprah. Like spiritual, famous spiritual 
information on those versus liking that thing. Okay. Um, and I haven't watched Oprah in a while, so um, <laughs> not saying you have, but uh, you, you know people who, who've watched Oprah. So <laughs> in, what, in what ways, in what, <laughs> so in what, in what ways does, it, does it come out as far as like supernatural belief? Okay. Okay. And I would say I would say that that falls kind of under the realm that there is there is a God. Um, and we would say that uh, when it when we come now to them particulars about what that, you know, how God relates to man or even even the absence of God in relationship to man, you have that you have kind of intermediaries like between God and man in the supernatural realm. What's that? Okay, <laughs> well, I, w- I would say if we look at our culture, we would say there's a culture of um, of spirits or ghosts. Uh, you know, you see that either in movies, um, you know, horror movies. There's always like new movies that you, <laughs> you see advertised uh, for different things, right? Books that would come out and uh, that that play upon that idea of you know fantasy, but but where the popularity comes is that there is uh, an inkling that for for some um, that this exists, or this could exist, right? Uh, sometimes in a, the reason for a popularity of something is not, not only how well it was written, but that perhaps this is how things are. Um, so you have, you have the idea of, of ghosts, you have the idea of you know, demons, you have the idea of angels, you have um, other aspects, uh, any other aspects that you see? Karma. What's that? You have the idea of karma, right? A continual, you know, rebirth, uh, coming back as one or another. I mean, you look at superhero movies, you see things that are drawing upon some of those ideas of people being immortal or, you know, not, not dying or having certain powers. And so really, if you look at a lot of things in our culture, there actually is a, an element of the supernatural. Now, the reality is, there is a supernatural world. Correct, right? There's a, there's a world outside of our natural world. So there are some that deny that wholesale, but I think they're really in the in the in the the small margin. There's there's actually I can't remember the study, but it just uh, kind of came to mind. There's actually a, a study that was um, atheists believe in an afterlife, and I can't remember. There's a certain percentage of atheists that actually believe in an afterlife, which seems kind of counterintuitive. Like if you believe there is no God, how would you also believe that there is an afterlife? It's a small percentage, but you kind of understand that if you believe that there is no God. Um, or deny, you know, any sort of supernatural, that there's still, like, in, in, in those surveys, you kind of understand that there's, there's still hope that people have. And I think that's where, some, where, where uh, that idea is, is kind of lies, with a connection to the supernatural. We know there's a supernatural world. We know reading the Bible, right? There are angels, and there are demons, um, and there are kind of things that are false or counterfeit to that supernatural realm. That's really what we're going to encounter today. And as we kind of think about that, we kind of understand that we live in a world that even if somebody says that they don't believe in God or they're not really religious, there's probably something that they do believe in supernatural realities. Whether it's, you know, I don't don't remember if any of you as kids, like, 
thought they had heard of a ghost, you know, in a particular room or something was haunted or whatever. You know, I remember there was a story that if you said something, you know, seven times in a mirror, then you'd see this image of some, you know, whatever. And as kids, you kind of understand, like, playing on that. But there's always, like, things that, you know, adults believe that too, right? There, there are people that, that you know that, that you drive by, you see... Uh, palm readers and spiritists, you know, and they seem to continue to have a business, right? They still, you've been there for 20 years, you know, you drive by on, on this particular road. And so there, there is this um, idea of the supernatural, and that's what we're going to kind of jump into when uh, we, we look at this aspect of, um, of Acts 19. One of the things that will come out, and we kind of mentioned, I mentioned some things about Ephesus, but we'll see with this Today and then what we'll look at next time we're together, um, that Ephesus was really deep-rooted in a belief in the supernatural. And there are places in America that you go to um, that you can go to and you can see this is more prevalent. Usually we would have the idea of New Age, um, mysticism, sometimes occult, you know, uh, depending on where you go. And they, they, it pops up in, in different ways. Well, let's uh, start reading in Acts chapter 19, verse 11. I'll read uh, the first few verses there and then kind of unpack what what we're seeing in these verses. And it says, uh, verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of this Lord, uh, of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom uh, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So, in addition to, we'll pause right there, in addition to what Paul was uh, teaching, right? You know, we see that that is part of his ministry, was pouring into the people, discipling the people for two years, but in addition to that, what else do we see marked his ministry there in Ephesus? What does it say in verse 11? What's that? Yes, there, there are miracles that are being done. These powers, is, the works of powers is, is uh, that, that term in, in the Greek. The NSB kind of uh, uh, translates it that way. But you know, Luke, Luke describes that. Now, what kind of miracles were presented? How, how do these... You know, if you see just signs or miracles, you're kind of left like, well, I wonder what that looked like. But um, Luke describes exactly what that looked like here. And so what, what happened? What, what were the miracles that were happening? Okay, handkerchiefs and anchors. I would say that's the means of what was going on. And what did those things do? What was the result of those things? They heal people. So heal people of what? Yeah, so diseases were healed and evil spirits left them, okay? Sometimes, you know, if you were to, as a medical doctor today, you know, looking at a patient, could you understand if somebody had a, well, they wouldn't say they had an evil spirit, but, you know, would they be able to discern if somebody had an evil spirit or a disease? And Luke says, whatever is ailing them, physical or spiritual, really is the kind of the aspect that he's looking at, um, that they were healed. Now, what means did those occur? How, how did they... 
how are those things being done? How are, how are these healings happening, these miracles being done? It was through the handkerchiefs and aprons. Now, what were these handkerchiefs? Some translations take the word as the handkerchief as a uh, what could be considered a sweatband. And sometimes the aprons could be looked at as towels where someone could wipe their, you know, same, same idea, wipe their sweat onto. And so some take this as, as Paul while he's working as a tent maker. I also could take this as, remember he was, when he was uh, preaching for two years, um, some translations add the time of the day that Paul was in there. It was kind of later in the day when it was hot. And so it could be while he was teaching. But in some aspects, it's like Paul's wiping sweat off as he's working. And people uh, understanding who Paul is, what he's teaching, and even some of the things associated with Paul. We've already seen that with John the Baptist's disciples, who, uh, that the Spirit, when it was poured out on them, started speaking in tongues and prophesying that something miraculous is happening associated with his ministry. And that people, when they got his towels, uh, these handkerchiefs, or the apron that he's you know, wiping his sweat off onto, or that his skin had touched, that's really you know, how, it's, how it's presented here, that something is happening where people are being healed of diseases, and evil spirits are leaving people. I mean, it's, these, are, these are extraordinary powers, um, miracles, as Luke would attest to. Now, have we seen anything like this happen before? Okay, where have we seen this happen before? Okay, excellent, excellent, yeah. So we see this in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 9, 21, uh, there was a woman right, who, had, who bled for 12 years, and that she touched Jesus' apron, and he looks at her and he says, you know, your faith has healed you. Um, we see a little bit later in Jesus' ministry, something else happened in Matthew 14, 36, that after he crossed the Sea of Galilee, um, some men recognized Jesus. They brought the sick to them that they may touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So we see this other idea that just touching you know, Jesus' garment, that happened. Earlier in Acts, you guys remember what happened earlier in Acts? It wasn't with Paul, but it was with somebody else. What's that? Peter, yeah. So it wasn't actually touching him. It was like the belief that his shadow, if his shadow just, you know, I got to see his shadow as he walked by and it touches me, that that would make me well. Um, Paul writes in Romans 15, he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So what would he say is the reason that these signs are being done? He doesn't deny these things being done, and even says that the Lord used him in these signs to be done, but what were they done for? Why are any signs done? For the kingdom of God. Now, you could, you could back up and say, like, why are any signs done? Uh, at all, and it's really to give glory to someone or something, because they're like, whoa, that's like mind-blowing, like I've never seen that before, I mean, I can't believe, you know, so for the apostles, right, that maybe people were hoping that, you know, looking to the apostles, but those apostles were always pointing to Jesus Christ, but there are people that will, and we'll get to in a little bit, that in Scripture had done that for their own personal gain. And that's typically what a magician or you know, somebody who, who practices these things were likely doing for their own personal gain. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul describes the Jews as those who demand signs. And so then it, it kind of brings us to the question is, you know, why would God, you know, allow these to happen? So what do you, I mean, what do you guys think about that? What do you guys think of like, you know, that if somebody just, Paul like wipes, wipes his head, he's sweating, he's working, and someone just grabs it, and then they go and they like touch someone, and that person's healed. Like, how do you feel about these types of passages? Man, I have a kind of a feeling that I just feel uneasy about these things. Like, you know, it seems like for so many things that we uh, we try to, um, yeah, whether it's whether it's like your your aversion to sweat, someone else's sweat, or um, that's not the reason. But I feel like it would almost in, encourage or increase that sort of thinking. What do you guys think? Like would it would it add to the confusion? For everything that God does, Satan provides a counterfeit. Yeah. Though you said, John. Is it counterfeit? Okay. If it isn't done scripturally. If it isn't done scripturally. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, with all those things, it's funny because I, you know, I, we got off channel somewhere and I, and there was, you know, a guy who was speaking to the camera, you know, and you kind of see him, my wife's like, why are you watching this? And I was like, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for, like, what he wants because he's talking about blessings and uh, there are all these blessings that are being poured out upon you. And I said, and she's like, can we just turn the channel? And I was like, no, I'm waiting for the ask, you know. And so it took a couple minutes, but finally, he, you know, it was the ask. Like, and if you just send in your money, you know, whether it's 25 cents or $25 or Somebody hears 25,000, you know, and you're like, that's, okay, now we can turn the channel. Because you understand, right, that, you know, that the Lord would give freely with nothing in return. And so that's how the apostles act, acted as well. Um, but I do say that for, what's that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so so sometimes, unfortunately, people will look at these miracles and say these are what happened, and these should be something that should continue. But the reality is, is when we see those things happening, 
the Lord is using what people already believe to point them to Him. And so, um, so, but I would, say, I would say sometimes when I read these passages, I have that, that thinking like, well, doesn't this add to the confusion, you know, where people are uh, having on, holding on to relics. Um, if you think about the, the um, Middle Ages where, you know, certain things were revered. Oh, this thing was owned by such and such, and if you pray to it, then you could have healing. Um, but that, that wasn't, it was, and it was always seen as a transitory, in-the-moment um, what's going on to seek them. And we're actually going to see that abuse here in this passage. But I kind of wanted us to kind of think about what, um, you know, what we believe of that, about that. But it seems very occult when we look at that. But I think often when we look at you know, what the Jews believed or the Gentiles believed, I mean, Gentiles, we kind of give a, I don't know, more of a pass and say, like, oh, they believed in all these different gods. And so they weren't thinking correctly anyway. But the Pharisees or the Jews were in that same boat. Not all were like the Pharisees where they held Scripture in high regard. They had things, added, added other beliefs to what they believed where there was Jewish mysticism. There was a, there's a, um, even it's today is there's a, a belief called Kabbalah where it's a Jewish mysticism where certain words or phrases in their Old Testament words, um, that if they're said in the right way, that they can invoke certain powers. or It's really kind of a um, mysticism where, or secret knowledge that people don't, don't have, but that was in, in, Jewish, uh, in a strain of Jewish beliefs. Even though in uh, Deuteronomy 18, I just will, will read it, um, what God says about, you know, spirits and mediums and things like that. Deuteronomy 18, verse 11, to verse 10, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That seems like that should be obvious. Um, Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And so this is kind of a practice of going to some sort of intermediary in order to like find out signs and events. You know? And that's, that's really what God is, is talking about, instead of going to God himself. And so, um, so in Paul's ministry, though, we don't see much of signs and wonders or miracles really happening. We see in one place, when he went to Iconium, and it's kind of interesting that it was just mentioned, just kind of mentioned in passing, um, that there was granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands, meaning Barnabas and Paul. But it was kind of Luke just wrote it, went there and he spoke to the synagogue, signs and wonders were done by their hands, then people wanted to stone him, and so he left. And so then it was the next town that he actually got stoned at. But that's kind of all that was said. But up until this point, we don't see that, but, but Luke kind of reveals some of these things that were happening. Luke reveals some of these things that were happening because some bigger things were happening in this ministry, and part of it had to do with where the culture was at and what they believed. Not only the Gentile culture, but the Jewish culture as well. And so we'll see a little bit more about this in just a little bit, and then next time we meet as well. And so continuing on, you know, Paul says, then in verse 13, right? So the handkerchiefs, people are grabbing them, diseases are leaving, um, spirits are coming out of people. And then verse 13 says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
undertook to involve the name of the Lord Jesus in this. And you kind of pause and you think, well, what are Jewish, you know, what are itinerant Jewish exorcists? So if someone's itinerant, what does that mean? What's that? Temporary. Temporary. Okay. And it typically means what? Usually if you're itinerant, what's that? Yeah, usually going from place to place. So if uh, you know, so that was kind of like their job. If you're an itinerant preacher, you typically go from kind of a church, you know, and speak. You might have a few sermons that you give, but you kind of go from one place to the next, kind of usually in a new new era. And uh, that's what you were you were known for. Um, that uh, that word exorcist. When we get the word exorcism, it comes from the Greek word that is 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 here is exorcism, um, and it means. T- uh, an oath that comes out of some someone or something. So, <clears throat> what exactly is an exorcist, or what was an exorcist at that time? An exorcist was somebody who drove out an evil spirit from somebody possessed, and typically the exorcist would learn the spirit's name. It's kind of interesting because we often find that sometimes we find out the name of of a demon um, in Jesus's ministry, and and sometimes even even. Uh, even afterwards, the exorcist would learn the spirit's name and find out its history and use these things to compel it out of the person. Um, often these men, because they could drive out demons, if you had that, that gift to drive out demons, they were held in high regard um, because they were you know, seen to do that. There are examples of uh, people in, in Scripture. There are examples. Um, there was uh, one of the Caesars. Uh, had hired a Jewish exorcist to exorcise somebody uh, that they knew um, to get a demon out of them, and so sometimes they were held with uh, high esteem. As far as like look at literature, there's in Paris, in a museum in Paris, there is a uh, manuscript called the Greek Magical Papyri, and it's a collection dated from 100 BC to 400 AD, which contains various spells from different magicians. It's kind of just a collection. It would say like spell from pieces of fragments from spell books and you know um, that other people had and kind of brought together. Uh, in there, there's a mixture of Greek, Jewish, and Egyptian beliefs. And when I say that, it's not that there was just Jewish beliefs, Greek beliefs, and Egyptian beliefs. It was that in these spells, that they would take whatever they felt as a source of power and kind of pull them together. One spell read, I adjure thee by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. And another, and again, remember this is found in Egypt, is uh, from the same uh, papyrus reads, Hail God of Abraham, hail God of Isaac, hail God of Jacob, Jesus Christus, Holy Spirit, Son of the Father. So it's like, let's just throw up all the things that we know uh, in order to give you know, whatever spell more power um, over whatever it is that they were, they were trying, these incantations that they were doing. And so we see that here there was a, a Jewish high priest named Sceva. Um, so there is one, you know, just kind of historical note about this is that Josephus, a Jewish historian, um, listed all of the high priests up until the fall of the temple and this Sceva is not a name that was mentioned there. So how do you understand this or how do you resolve that? Um, you know, in case somebody says that's a, an error, um, you could say a couple different ways to resolve this issue. He could have been from a high priestly line of where they would have drawn the high priest from, so not actually a high priest himself. Um, he could have been a high priest of another religion, even though he was Jewish, but knowing that there are multiple religions that kind of people draw upon, he could have had a Jewish background, but a high priest of another, another religion. It's probably less likely. 
Um, some could have been just a false claim on his part. He claimed to be a high priest in order to give himself greater notoriety because only the high priests were allowed to go where in the temple? The Holy of Holies. And so if somebody had access, which only few people have access to, um, to one particular area, it would have just increased his, uh, his sense of power. Um, but we see that this, this man, who is named Sceva, whatever his true relationship was, or whatever his true title was, that he has seven sons, and that um, they, were, uh, they were you know, trying to invoke these spirits out. Before we get there, um, these Jewish itinerants, I, I guess I skipped over this, um, when they tried to compel spirits out of somebody, what, what did they say? So in verse 13, in whose name did they re- proclaim? Yeah. So the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now just kind of the phrasing of that, what is that what would you think about that? How that's stated. They weren't Okay. So again, they're they're like, well, he seems to be working for him. He seems to have power over these things and it's through his God who or his Messiah who his source of power that they are adjuring spirits to come out through Jesus. And so, again, it wasn't their beliefs, but they're adopting it if it's allowing them you know, to, uh, to be able to do things that they can't do. Um, so why do you think they invoke Jesus' name to cast out demons? What's that? Because it worked. Now, why, why, why would it work? Have we seen other places where, where demons are... Uh, Fearful of the name of Jesus. Well, in most instances, it was people who believed who Jesus was. Okay. And these people obviously don't. I mean, I find it kind of interesting that there are people who claim to be Jewish claiming the name of Jesus, whom they crucified. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> right. Yeah. Definitely bizarre. And that's, and that's kind of, though, I would say when you start to, again, investigate what people believe, there are often conflicts, right, in, uh, in, what, in one strand of belief that, you know, people think of in, in another strand of belief. You know, people are just a mixture of backgrounds, traditions, things they pick up, which kind of work for them, right? You know, if, again, if you, if you talk to people about what they believe, you know, if they have not adopted a particular religion, you know, I guarantee you that the more you ask, there'll be things that just seem to run counter to each other, and people just are like, well, I don't know, that's just what I believe. And you're like, but that doesn't make any sense. And they're like, well, I just believe that. You know, you're like, okay. <laughs> um, and so in this sense, exactly, we see that right here is that it's bizarre that, that they, we would see that. We see in examples where... Uh, where there are demons that shudder when they, they know that you know, Jesus, the Holy One, is in their presence. James 2.19 says that even the demons believe and they shudder, right? And so there's, demons know who Jesus is. And, and by the power of Jesus, they would fear. Except for the fact what? Is just Jesus' name enough? I mean, it might be. It might be. 
It might be knowing that perhaps that there is a threat to go along with it, but if it's just invoking someone's name for, you know, with, a, with uh, nothing to back it up, uh, if somebody is in dwelt with the Holy Spirit, perhaps now they have power that they could, you know, that the Lord could use to exercise them out. But again, if you stand back and think like, well, what does the supernatural realm look like? Job is a perfect place to go to kind of understand some of that, right? That we see Satan going to the throne room of God and that they have these, you know, they're having this conversation and, and God himself says, have you, have you observed my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, well, you know, he's got, he's very blessed. And if, you know, he didn't have any of that, he would forsake your name. And God says, well, go ahead and do it. Right. And so because we see there that, that everything that Satan does is even under the power of what the Lord allows and what the Lord does. And so um, when we see kind of some of these things happening, uh, if you're going to invoke Jesus' name, you better have that understanding to go with it that Jesus actually uh, was the Messiah, was the one who, who can uh, have that power over demons. And that false, that empty threat is really what we see here. Um, we see people have that desire to uh, have that type of power in the past. Simon the Magician, when he was in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter, and Peter rebuked him uh, for that. Um, and so we see the same thing kind of going on here. They're seeing things going on associated with his ministry, um, and they want some of it as well. well what happened to the, sons, the seven sons of Sceva? which is a great band name, by the way, the Seven Sons of Sceva. Uh, <laughs> so what are, they tried, you know, Luke gives it a, a specific example of something that went on, and uh, what happened with them? Yeah, right, and you can tell, like, Luke loves the irony here. You know, he says, Jesus I know, and Paul, uh, it's a different form of no, but it's no, but not no as intimately as well, which is interesting that these demons know Jesus pretty clearly. Paul they know, but not in the same, same sense. And why would they know Jesus more than they would know Paul? Son of God, right? Perhaps even, you know, uh, you know an encounter with Jesus himself. Um, but they said, who are you? What's that? Exactly, exactly, right? I mean, Jesus would have been a part of their creation, right? So, um, so they would have known Jesus, and Luke uses that, again, that term, a, a more intimate knowledge of somebody. Paul, I recognize, you know, I know who, who he is, but definitely not as well as Jesus. But who are you? Who are you? And so they sense that empty threat, right? I see you invoking this name, but this, that, the name in itself, although Jesus' name has power, but Jesus' name has no power if there is no faith or belief associated with that. Right? For somebody to, uh, to, to be healed, and Jesus even said that when the woman t- reached out to touch the garment, he said it wasn't, you know, good job to touch my garment. You know, he didn't like support that claim, right? It was your faith that the fact that even touching my garment would make you well is making you well. It's the fact that it's through Jesus and the power that he provides that They'll make you well. And so this spirit, this, this evil spirit, is not phased by these men. And so how do they respond? He was overpowered by the demons, and then he had to run out of the house. 
Naked and wounded, yeah. Yeah, the spirit leaped on them. He had this, this physical strength to overpower these seven men, right? Um, and that's typically what you would see with demon possession that, you know, and, and some of their, their examples now of people that are on drugs that, that are just, you know, <laughs> they have this strength uh, that is beyond what seems, seems typical. And so this man having this spirit in him, this evil spirit, taking all, over all his faculties, overpowered them. The word is lorded over them, mastered them, had dominion over them, really had their way with, had his way with these men to the fact that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. They were, they were bleeding um, as they went out. In other words, the spirit humiliated them. So these seven sons of a priest, they would have been known, right? They, they would if this man had notoriety and the sons being a part of this family would have had notoriety and them trying to, to uh, you know, maybe make a spectacle of it. In Jewish exorcism, there's a history of, of again, in this, this Jewish exorcism of having ten men um, that would be there to uh, be present and witness when an exorcism was occurring. So typically it was a public display. Um, um, and so there would have been people witnessing these events and seeing what happened and they had no... No power. And we see that in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what happened as a result of this event, this, these men being overpowered by this demon? So they were humiliated, but what happened with... So the word spread, right? The word of God spread. It says fear fell upon them. And Jesus was praised. There was repentance. There was repentance. We'll see... Yeah, and we'll see that in just a second. Initially, though, we see that, that the word spread, fear fell, and that Jesus was praised. Have we seen that happen before in Acts? You guys remember? There was a time early in, in Jerusalem where something major happened, and it, fear came you know, all over the people. Ananias and Sapphira, right? And it was one of those events that, you know, we stopped and looked at and said, wow, that was a serious event. And because of their lying about what had happened, right, that even though we, you know, it's just a lie, right? But it lied about something that even, even Peter said you didn't have to lie about, but the consequences were great. And because of those consequences, everybody heard about it. Fear fell upon the people and the church increased. <laughs> Not like, hey, I want to stay away from them. But again, we said that, because of that fear, people realize that's true, you know, that's true religion, right? That is true faith. Whatever I'm believing is not happening, and whatever they believe seems to be real. And again, God is using some of these touch points in their lives, things that they already believe to draw them to there. It's kind of amazing that through satanic activity that Jesus is receiving glory, that Jesus is receiving glory. And sometimes, you know, we, we think, uh, you know, that God would work in this way. And sometimes it's hard to maybe reconcile that people's attraction to the mystical, but God can use that 
to kind of point them to the true source of supernatural power. And so we see that again in our, our culture. We see that again in our, you know, even, even uh, during this season, right, when we see it kind of maybe through the lens of kids where they want to believe in things that happen that are like they don't normally see happening, sometimes attributing powers to other people, other things. Um, but those are just, again, counterfeit, right? Really the true power belongs in God. I remember having a, a you know, conversation with uh, somebody that was saying, well, maybe God is using Santa Claus to say, you know, like he's got power, you know, to then point people to like, you know, God has that same power too. And I was like, maybe, you know, um, <laughs> probably not. Um, but I think it's the opposite, right? That God's power is true power, but people want to believe in something, but they, it's hard to make that leap. And if they have something else that they can believe in, we know, God, you know there's idolatry in our hearts that sometimes it's easier to believe in something else that has power than God who has power. Why? Because what comes along with God's power? Exactly. There's a, there's a reconciling, there is judgment, right? I mean, the only judgment that Santa has is, right, you know, like, if you're on the naughty list or the nice list, and you're like, yeah, you know, I was good this year, but, 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 but it's not like that, right? I mean, you do one thing, everyone's on the naughty list with God, right? And so that is, that is where, like, you know, people want to believe, you see that idea, you see it just perpetuated in our culture. I'm, I'm not pointing this out as a critique or, you know, condemnation, I'm just saying, it just exists, and we can understand where the roots of that lie. The fact that there is a desire to believe in the supernatural, to believe in God, but there are things that people stop short of, and they, they would rather worship something else or believe something else than repent and believe in God. So what happened else? And John kind of mentioned this. It led to, what else did this lead to? It led to the believers confessing, right, and gave up their idolatrous practices. They, they brought all their magic books. Um, what do we call that? We call that repentance, we also call that conviction, right? That we see in their lives that people are like, I have these things, they probably like were believers, had these things from their past, but they were like, you know what, I just need to like burn them. I need to, something that I'm holding on to. And so they gave up their, their magic arts books. It was something valuable, but something that was sinful, right? Magic was a part of their culture, it was revered, it was something respected, it would have brought in, you know, uh, probably you know a fair amount of money. Books were not common that those days, but even magical books would have been things that people would have collected, just like this, the papyrus that was seen. It would have been like people's incantations, you know, things that would have been held onto that would have been very valuable. And they decided, you can you can have all this. You can have all this, God. I'm I'm giving it up. And Luke puts the value on it that it was fifty thousand pieces of silver. On the minimum, you know, if we were to convert that amount of silver, it would be about $35,000, $40,000 in silver. So you're like, ah, you know, it's a lot. But a piece of silver in those days was one day's wage of work. So if you want to make that connection, it was 50,000 days of labor, which is a lot of days, right? And so it was more than they could make up in their lifetime for what they had given up and sold. And sometimes we have that own conviction in our own life. And um, you know, I know there's things in my life that things that I had after becoming a believer that after a point I was like, you know, I just need to get rid of that, right? It might be, you know, whatever it was that something that you just had that, you know, was part of a possession of yours that you're like, yeah, it's no big deal, you know. Then you're like, you know what, honestly, it's just something I just, just need to 
need to, to get get rid of. It's it's not something that glorifies God and just should should burn it. And so, what does then giving up the idolatrous items lead to? It says that the word of the Lord was was able to to be spread. So there is a connection with sin and a hindrance to the gospel. And by giving that up, it says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Prevail mightily. So there's kind of a lot here, you know, we're, as, as we wrap this up, you know, uh, to think about. It's one of those passages that you can, again, just kind of, kind of gloss over and be like, that's an interesting tidbit of knowledge. But, and we can also say, well, that's maybe in Ephesus where they believe in magic and magic books and all of those things. But we would be remiss to say oh, that isn't really happening in our culture, in our day. And we can use that, right, as touch points, as examples, as ways that we can connect with the people um, because people are bent towards the supernatural realm, rightfully so, but we know that God is supreme over the supernatural, and instead of going to any of these things that are, would be intermediaries or somewhere in the in-between, go to God directly, right? Go to the source and find not just judgment, right? But we find that source of hope, because that is really what God desires. All right, well... Is there anything else that uh, you guys uh, kind of thought about?